14, 8 through 20, and you could find it on page 1093. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left, him, left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your, and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Thank you, Andrew. I think Andrew would probably kill me at a spelling bee or a vocabulary test. That was fantastic. Uh, I want to start by, oh, my Bible. I knew I was missing something. I want to start by asking you a question, and that is, do you know anyone who has been robbed? Do you know anyone who has been robbed? Maybe you know someone uh, that was literally robbed. Maybe somebody uh, you know, broke into their house and stole their TV. Uh, or, or, or maybe, uh, but I, I guess I mean even like at a deeper sense. Do you know anybody, a friend, a, a neighbor, a coworker, who has been robbed of life? Like you'd say their life has been robbed. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you have a coworker that you have known for many years, and, and you went to their wedding. Maybe you were even in their wedding. And so you've, you've kind of seen over the years, you've seen how maybe, maybe she poured herself into this marriage invested so much of her life into this marriage and and you saw it only to see the wheels come off and and maybe this person left her or, or did something and and you're just looking you're like that person has been robbed of their life do you know any anybody a friend a coworker a neighbor who's who's had their life robbed uh, maybe maybe your neighbor got fired unexpectedly got laid off after maybe 20 25 years working for some company uh, really no fault of their own, uh, maybe some shadiness up at corporate, right? And, and so you look, you're looking at this individual now, and you see they're just doing, you know, they're doing whatever they can to get back to square one. They're having to work extra jobs, extra hours, and then you're seeing the, you know, there's the, the spinoff of that. There's the residual effects of that, and so now this person, maybe they're not able to go to their kid's baseball game anymore, and so you're like, this person is being robbed of their life. 
Do you, do you know anyone, maybe it was some sort of illness, they had some sort of illness or depression or something, and, and you, you've seen how it hinders their ability to enjoy life. Maybe you've seen somebody where it's their own decisions. Their own decisions have robbed them of life. Their own sin, perhaps, have robbed them of their own life. Perhaps even, perhaps their anger, maybe they struggle with anger. And so their anger has robbed them of life. Maybe their anger led to some sort of a, led to their relationship failure. Or, or maybe their, their anger got them fired. Or even just, you know, you know how anger, anger just robs you of your life all on its own. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's, like it's, it's like this little song that I wrote for my kids. And the song goes, goes, it's no fun to be angry. It's no fun to be mad. It takes all my energy, and it makes me very sad. I mean, isn't that true, that, that anger just, it robs you, it robs you of your own life? Do you know anybody, do you know any friends, any neighbors that, you look at them, you're like, their, their life has been robbed. Now, if you've been coming the last couple of weeks, you, you might say, Kevin, that intro sounds r- vaguely familiar. Well, you're right. Today we're continuing in our series called The Story, and the central message of this whole series is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into the story. You've got to understand how it fits into the overarching narrative of Scripture, that the Bible is not primarily a book of timeless truths. The Bible is not primarily an instruction manual for life though it contains all of the wisdom and all of the instructions that you would ever need, but if you want to get at that wisdom and if you want to get at those instructions in any passage, you've got to see how that passage fits into this overarching narrative of Scripture. I was just talking with, with someone in our church who, who, who knows someone who's part of a religious community that only focuses on one part of the Bible. That's all they study. And, and, and see, when you, when you do that, you can come to some weird conclusions. Because that's not how the Bible is to be, to be viewed. It's, it's a story, and if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand how any of these passages fit into the overarching narrative of Scripture. And we've, we've seen that it unfolds in these four acts. If you take the whole Bible and just what is the whole Bible, it unfolds in these four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, Fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God created everything, and He created it good. God created a a wonderful, beautiful world, and He created us in His image to reflect that and and to work with Him, to work with Him to, to bring even greater beauty and order to all of creation. That's creation. But then there's the fall. We we lost faith. We lost faith in God, and we decided maybe it's better to go our own way. So we kind of went our own way. We turned away from God. And when you turn away from God, inevitably what happens when you turn away from God, when a culture turns away from God, is they begin to turn away from one another. And so then there's not just a separation between them and God, but separation between them and one another. There's an enmity between them. And, and, and so this, you know, we read in the early chapters of Genesis about the spiraling decadence of humanity. That's the fall. Then the third act, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. God unleashes a plan. God unleashes a plan to, to undo this. And he, he calls out 
a people. He calls out Abraham, the people of Abraham, the people of Isaac, the people of Jacob, Israel, and, and calls them to be the means through which renewal comes to this world. And, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, which, as we talked about, was sort of God's blueprint for beautiful community, and, 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 and gave them this so that if we lived according to these, then we would model for the world what, be, what beautiful community can look like. And so that was the, the goal here, is that they would be the means through which renewal would come. But as we saw, as we went through the pages of Scripture, that that God's people, they made the same mistake Adam did, and they, they turned away from God as, as well. And so by the time you come to the end of the Old Testament Scriptures, you, you don't find that they've renewed, uh, they brought redemption to the world, but actually the world is kind of crushing in on them, and they've even turned away from God in many respects. And so, so then it seems like this whole plan has failed. And then that leads right up to the climax, right? Because in every good story, the climax comes right after it seems like there's no hope. And that leads to the climax, and the climax is, of course, the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the climax of the story, that everything's, everything's pointing to. And we've seen that the climax of the story is, is the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That, that whole period from his, his birth, his ministry, uh, to his death and his resurrection and his ascension, that is the climax of the story. That Jesus came and he... He died for us to forgive us of our sin, this, this separation from God, that, that forgiveness, uh, there's a cost to forgiveness, that when you forgive somebody, you absorb it, you take the weight of it. And so we see that that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes and he absorbs the weight of our sin and, and makes it possible for us to once again be in communion with God. And he, he brings renewal and, and, and he's, he's helping and healing people and, 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 and making beginning to make things the way they're supposed to be. So this is the climax. Jesus is the climax. And so today, we're finally in a position to answer a question that I think has been emerging over the last seven months that we've been going through this series. It's a question that slowly kind of emerges as we have been going through this to the point where, to me, it's kind of the elephant in the room. And it's this question. Where are we in the story? Where are we here living in 21st century, you know, where, where are we into the story? If the Bible is a story, and not just any story, but the story, the story of, of history, right? And, and we're reminded when we looked at, at, at Jesus' crucifixion last week that that this is not just a story. This isn't just like a, a nice story to communicate a timeless truth, you see. It's, it's, uh, it's the story that it's grounded in history, right? That Jesus' crucifixion, it isn't just some nice idea. This is something that happened that we looked at, the, you know, a little bit of it. It's part of the first century politics of the Roman Empire, and that reminds us that this is the story. And so if, if this story is the story, then the natural question is, well, where do we fit into this story living here? And I believe that what this passage shows us is that we are still in the climax. We are still in the climax. That in fact, you find in the New Testament, they talk about living in the last days. They're living in the last days and living in the last days. And 
And, and, and what they're talking about is, is that they see themselves as on this climax, right, between creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Like, we're not quite a restoration yet, but Christ has come, so it's, we're, we're in, in the climax. And you're like, well, the climax is going on for 2,000 years. Okay, that's a good point. We've got to remember our God, the God of the Bible. Of him it says that a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. So that, that makes no difference to him. And so I would suggest that what this passage is pointing to is the reality that we are still in the climax. You're like, well, how can that be? How can we be in the climax? And I think what, what this passage points to, what we're going to see, is that what it means to be the church is to relive the life of Jesus. What it means to be the church is to relive, to recapitulate, to, to recapitulate, to be when we are united with him, then, then we, in a sense, simply relive and enter into in union with him. We relive exactly his, his life and his ministry. And I, I think we're going to see that. In fact, I think that's exactly what's going on here in the book of Acts. Because what's interesting is the book of Acts in its entirety, what's interesting is that I think the, the author, Luke, he wants us to see this. He wants us to see that, that we... we what we do mirrors what Jesus did, that there is this mysterious sense in which we are with him in the climax. And the way that he does that is by even literarily, there are these remarkable parallels between how the gospel of Luke unfolds and how the gospel, or excuse me, how the book of Acts unfolds. The gospel of Luke is his account of Jesus' ministry, and the, and the book of Acts is his account of the ministry of the early church. And what we define is these remarkable parallels. Let me read this for you. This is from... Rebecca Donova, she is a religious studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh. She says this, she sums this up well, comparing these two books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The baptism of Jesus with water in Luke 3 is paralleled by the community's baptism in the Spirit in Acts 2. Jesus' message is rejected in Nazareth in in Luke 4, and the community's message is rejected in Jerusalem in Acts 3 through 5. Herod Antipas intends to kill Jesus in Luke 13, while Herod Agrippa attempts to kill Peter in Acts 12. Luke 14 through 18 contains the gospel to the outcasts, and Acts 13 through 20 contains a gospel that includes Gentiles. Chapters 9 through 19 of the Gospel of Luke contain Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and Acts 19 through 21 contain Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Both Jesus and Paul, both Jesus and Paul suffer a passion and four trials, Luke 20 through 23 and Acts 21 through 26 respectively. The death of Jesus in Luke 23 is paralleled, that's not exact, it's paralleled in Acts 27 with Paul's death at sea, his shipwreck. And then Jesus is resurrected in Luke 24 and Paul is resurrected out of the shipwreck in Acts 28. That literally, it's, it's showing these parallels to show that what the church is doing is essentially reliving the climax. What's interesting is that, is that actually, uh, this is something that the liturgical calendar actually reminds us of. Uh, for those who are familiar with the liturgical calendar, and I, I won't get into the, the benefits and the potential pitfalls of following the liturgical calendar. I'll save that for another time. But what I'll, what I'll at least suggest is what's when it's used well, and it can be used well, and it can be used in ways that are not helpful to our, our, our spiritual walk, but when it's used well, actually what the liturgical calendar does is precisely reminds us that we're living in the climax. 
In fact, it just reminds us each year that we're living in the climax because what the liturgical calendar does is over the course of the year, it just takes you and walks you through the climax, through the ministry of Jesus. The liturgical calendar starts with Advent, right? And there we sort of, it's like we go back in time and we relive the the anticipation, the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. And, and, and so it's this season of hope. We relive that hope and, and then even project it to our own hope waiting for Christ to return. But we sort of relive that whole hopeful expectation and then, then Christ returns. And then after, or excuse me, then Christ is born, we celebrate his birth. And then after Christmas, after Advent and Christmas, is Epiphany. And the word Epiphany just means to manifest, manifestation. And, and this is a period when we reflect upon God revealing himself, manifesting himself to the world in the ministry of Jesus. That's what Jesus was doing throughout his earthly ministry was manifesting the presence of God to people. And so during this season of Epiphany is the season where we can be called to reflect upon Jesus' manifestation of God of the world. And then also for us as the body of Christ, it's a call for us to do the same thing, to manifest the presence of, of God to, to people in our community and around our world. So that's Epiphany. And then after Epiphany comes Lent, and Lent is an opportunity for us to relive, to walk with Jesus to the cross. It's an opportunity for us that that as Jesus died for our sins, it's an opportunity for us to to die to our sins. It's an opportunity for us to to cast our sins on to Him. That as as He died for the world, it's an opportunity for us to die to the world. As Jesus died for the world, it's an opportunity for us to die to the world. And so, so this is a season where we give up our idols, right? We give up those things in our life that, that maybe we feel like are starting to, to draw our attention a little bit too much. Maybe we're starting to uh, rely on them a little bit too much. Those, those things that can become idols, right? So maybe TV, you give up TV for Lent. It's starting to become a little bit too important to you in your life. You give up TV. You give up Facebook. You give up alcohol. You give up chocolate. Uh, you give up football. I'm going to give up football for Lent. It's all about the loopholes in religion, right? Got to remember that. No, but it's an opportunity to identify what are those, those idols, and, and, and we, we give those up. As Jesus died for the world, we die to the world. And, and as Jesus was stripped naked, we strip ourselves of our pretense. You see, this is a season of authenticity. It's a season of, 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 of being honest with your struggles as Jesus entered into the, entered into the grave and, and, and battled the powers of darkness, Lent is a season in which we can battle those struggles, those struggles and difficulties that, that maybe we've, we've shoved down, we've, we've denied, we've, we've, you know, pressed away. And no, this is a season in which you enter into that with the confidence that Jesus has already entered in there and will be victorious. So that's Lent. And then, and then there's Easter. And Easter is celebration of the resurrection. We, we, we live it. We relive the resurrection of Jesus. We, we relive the life and his victory over sin and, and, and death. And, and then actually, Easter, if Lent was a time when we gave up our idols, then Easter is a time when we bring them back, but not as idols anymore. Not as idols anymore, but as gifts 
from God, good things. Because you see, all those things that I mentioned, they're all good gifts from God, but they become idols. And so Lent is a time to crucify them as idols, and then, and then Easter is a time to bring them back as gifts from God, things that we're grateful for, but now they don't have the same grip on us. It's a time of life. It's a time of, of, of realizing that God has come to redeem all of these things and to give life. Freedom from sin, that we're, we're free from the sin that, that we have now confessed and given to Him. It's a time to sort of relive the resurrection. And then, and then that goes, actually, the, the season of that whole Easter season is, well, it, it's 50 days leading up to Pentecost. And then Pentecost at the end is a time when, when you're called to celebrate the coming of the Spirit upon God's church and to rest in the Spirit. And then also to remind us of our calling to go out. You see, it can be a very beautiful thing because it reminds us that we are living in the climax. That what it means to be a Christian is to, is to enter in into this mysterious way, to enter into that life of united with Him, knowing that He's already been through it, and we enter into that to find life. We relive it. We enter into the climax. So, so what does that mean for us today, and specifically what does it mean with regards to this passage? And I think with this, then, with that context, then with this passage, what it shows us is simply this. What does this passage say, guys? This passage is reminding us that we are called to give people their life back. Right? There's a parallel. We see the parallel again, right? I mean, two weeks ago, see, two weeks ago, we looked at a passage where Jesus... Uh, he brought healing into, he cast out a, a, the demon-possessed, he healed a leper, right? He, he was giving people their, their lives back. And, and then in, in this passage, it's not Jesus, but it's the church. Well, it's Jesus working through the church, giving their life back. And so, so this, this is why, if you think that my intro sounded roughly familiar, you're right, it was exactly the same intro. Except that two weeks ago, I asked you if you'd been robbed of your life. I asked you if you'd been robbed of your life. And then that whole message was about how Jesus has come to give you your life back. And now we're just revisiting that. We're going back in time and we're entering into that. But now we relive it and, and it's, it's about us being the body of Christ and doing what Jesus did. And that's giving people their lives back. But, of course, it's incredibly important to keep the order right. right. It's incredibly important. Like, I've done these two sermons now. I did, did one sermon talking about Jesus giving us, his, giving us our life back, and, and now I'm getting, about to give here a sermon about us, about us giving life back to other people. But you've got to keep those in the right order, you see. You've got to keep them in the right order. You can't, you can't mix match them, right? Because otherwise, and this is what can often happen, is we end up with this attitude of like, well, if I want Jesus to give me life, I've got to help other people. Right? Oh, my gosh, my life is really struggling. If, if I want God to help me, well, I better go help other people. And maybe if I go help other people, then maybe he'll come and help me. No, this is where... The gospel, the gospel entry point, as I like to call it, is no, 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 no. no we, we don't give life to other people in order to get God to give us life. We give life to other people because he's already given it to us on the basis of his grace. It's on the basis of his, on the basis of his grace. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't help other people in order to get God to help us. 
You see, this is also what can happen with something like the liturgical calendar. Again, if you miss it in light of the gospel, then, then all that religious stuff becomes, becomes a, a, a way to get God to, to, to love me. If I don't do these religious things, then I'm not accepted by God. And that's not it at all. It's that you're already accepted. He already came on the basis of His grace. And now He invites you to be a part of His life. See, it's out of response for what? Jesus has done that we give. And that's really important because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you a three-point sermon. And I know some of you like three points. And so this is the point where you're going to start to write it down because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say three ways from this passage, three ways in which we can give people their life back. Three, three things we need to do to give people their life back. And you'll write these down, but the problem is, if you don't remember what I just said, then two years from now, you're going to pull that out, and you'll be like, oh, gosh, I gotta, these are these three things the pastor told me. I got I to get to it. If I don't do these three things, then, then God, oh, I'm a terrible person. God's not going to love me. Well, did you forget the whole first part of the sermon? So don't, please don't write this down. Unless you've been taking notes, you're not allowed to start now. In response to the gospel, that God has given us life freely on the basis of His grace, then we are called to unite with Him and to give that life back to others. There's three things I think we can see coming out of this passage. First of all, giving life back to others begins with establishing trust. It begins with establishing trust. You see, what happens here is that Paul... Paul establishes trust with this crippled man here, right? In verse 9, it says, he listened to Paul, this crippled man listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, we need to understand, most scholars agree that this is probably not talking about like a, a complete sort of saving faith, like... Like, you know, there's no, there's no suggestion here that this guy, like, you know, confesses his sins and proclaims Jesus as Lord. You know, it, it seems like, you see, it seems like, uh, it's more like he, he just knows that this man has got something that he needs. He somehow trusts this, he trusts Paul. I trust you, man. Whatever this is you got, I, I need that. You see, he's established, he's established trust. And and, 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's possible the way this reads, you know, I mean, the way this reads is it sounds like Paul just kind of shows up and, you know, the guy, he just meets him for the first time and now he trusts him. And, and that's certainly possible that, that, that kind of comes off the page that way. And that's certainly possible that that's how it took place. But one of the things we need to remember is that both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, the authors will often use a literary device known as telescoping. And what they'll do there is they'll basically take, you know, something that probably was, uh, you know, had a lot more to it and was longer, and they'll telescope it. And so they'll condense it, and so it'll make it all sound rather immediate. This is why you look at the sermons in Acts, and you read through them, and they take 30 seconds. And you're like, really? He preached for 30 seconds? No, they're, they're, they're telescoping. So it's certainly possible that there's more going on here, that, that he's, he's over the couple, a couple of days or longer or whatever, that he's had some sort of relationship with him. But that doesn't really matter. You know, it's also possible that it was very immediate, But that isn't really the point. The point is whether it was quickly or over a period of time, Paul establishes trust. He establishes trust. And I think in our world, it's really important for us to establish trust. And here's why. In our culture, if you don't establish trust first, you'll probably never find out what their needs are in the first place. Because, I mean, right here, I mean, this guy's needs are kind of obvious, 
right? But isn't it true that in our culture, most of our needs are hidden behind a veil of self-sufficiency? Isn't that true? I mean, most of our, most of our needs are just hidden, hidden behind a, a veil of self-sufficiency. I was talking with another member of our church here, this individual, uh, just by virtue of their work, often finds themselves at some kind of swanky parties, kind of fancy parties, you know, networking. This is uh, uh, things that, that they kind of have to go to and this sort of deal. And, and uh, you, you know, at, at these parties in the New York metropolitan area, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not really one to talk. I don't, I like I go to these very often, though I have been to a few weddings that were just... So, but you know, with a lot of these, a lot of these kind of you know fancy parties or whatever, you, you go there and it's it's you walk in and on the surface it, it seems like the new heavens and new earth have arrived, right? I mean, you walk in, it's like a glimpse of shalom. It's a glimpse of the way things ought to be. You know, it's as if we've all gotten our resurrected bodies back. You know, it's like because you got like your fancy dress and you well, that person's never looked that beautiful and their hair their hair has never looked that good. That's got to be the Holy Spirit, you know, working that person, you know. I mean, it's like the renewal of all things is taking place right here in this, right here in this party. And then the food, like the food that they serve, I mean, it, like, it's, it, it, it sounds almost exactly like what Isaiah describes the food will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. But we all know that there's an illusion going on. There's this illusion of self-sufficiency that that, that, couple sipping martinis and laughing in the corner, they'll be divorced by next year. Those uh, young women, early 30s, you know, decked out and, and, and talking and complimenting one another confidently, you know that underneath all of that, there is this deep insecurity that they're trying to hide. Then there's that other couple, you know, that the kind of that couple that looks like, boy, they they've been they've been successful, they've done well, you know, they're, and they're sitting there holding hands and they're listening to the music, and and what you don't know is that they're they're just glad to to get a little bit of an escape because the last two years they've been helping their daughter go through chemo treatment. You see, it's it's all. Our needs are all hidden behind this veil of self-sufficiency. And it's really easy, actually. It's easier to hide these needs in our culture. Because in the Roman world, let's put it this way. In the Roman world, uh, this is interesting. In a number of the cities in the Roman world, the population density was four times that of New York City. But the buildings could only go ten stories high. Okay? So let's just let's think about this here. You get in an argument with your spouse... Everybody knows about it because there's probably lots of people living in the same complex. And, and you know, I mean, they, they didn't have windows that could seal off the sound. I mean, this, this is the point in our culture, right? We've got these, these windows that seal off the sound and huge backyards and front yards. And, 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 and you get in your car and you get in your garage. And, and so we're just kind of sealed off. And so it's, it's much easier to hide what's really going on. And so here, here's the point. If, if, if we want to give people their life back, you see, if we want to give people their life back, we're gonna, the only way you're ever going to know what their needs are is if they tell you. And the only way they're going to tell you is if you've established trust. 
And so the first thing we have to do if we, if we want to give people their life back is we've got, to, we've got to establish their trust. We've got to cultivate a relationship with them. First thing that we do to give people their lives back, life back is, is establish trust. And then the se- secondly, the second thing that we do is we meet their needs, right? We meet their needs. And then this is what he does, right? He, he, he meets this individual's need. He, he heals this crippled individual, right? And so, so then what we're called to do is, is meet needs. Now, one of the things we got to realize is that, of course, Jesus, Jesus was uniquely equipped to meet every need. Jesus could meet every need that came his way. But, but each individual in the church is not equipped to meet every need, right? That the Spirit, the Spirit of God that comes upon the church works in different individuals in different ways and equips us with the ability to, to, meet, needs, to meet needs differently, right? So let me kind of put it this way. Um, uh, there are some of you that if I really needed prayer, being sick, I, I might go to you. Because I feel like, boy, God really works through your prayers. I'm going to come for you for prayer. Uh, But the people that I would come to for prayer aren't necessarily the same people I would come to for money. Right? Because then there are others of you that you're, you're... I mean, not that your prayers don't work. I'm not trying to knock you or anything like that. But, but some of you, like you, 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 you've been gifted in a different way. And you might actually have been gifted to make money and, and have a heart of generosity. That you might love to really help people and be generous. And so, so you see, we have, we have different needs and, and, and different abilities. And, and we're going to meet them in, in different ways. In fact, what we need to see is that this passage right here is a particular that points to the universal. I mean, what, what Luke is doing here is he's really just giving an example, right? He's giving an example of the kinds of things that the church was doing. And presumably, he had all kinds of stories to choose from. Right, so the point is that when, when we meet people's needs, it's not necessarily going to look exactly like this. I mean, it might. It certainly might, but it, it also might not. I mean, my, my guess is if I was Luke, I would pick the most exciting stories, wouldn't you? So I'm sure he probably did. And so honestly, I would suggest that perhaps for every crippled person who was healed like that, uh, there were a hundred that went through Financial Peace University and, 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 and received God's healing through that mechanism, that, that for every young girl who a demon was cast out, there, there were a hundred marriages that were saved through prayer and through good biblical counsel, that for every prison door that swung open by an angel, there were a hundred young people who were shepherded and ministered and to and mentored in such a way as to avoid them going to prison in the first place. See, the Spirit works in all of these different ways. So you're thinking, I don't know if I could give people their life back, you know. I'm not sure I'm gifted in the way this way. Well, maybe you are. Maybe you are and you don't know it. But also, you see, well, there's many different needs and many different gifts and many different ways in which God can work through us. You know, I have conversations every week with Felicia. And Felicia, for those of you who don't know, unfortunately, now there are some of you who don't know who she is because she hasn't been here in a while. She's... She's our director of ministries who's being held hostage. She's not being held hostage. She's being detained. I don't even know if that's the right word, but she's in Malaysia. And I still meet with her regularly on, on FaceTime and whatnot. And what I love meeting with Felicia, what I love meeting with Felicia is, is she, we, we look at the big questions. We, we a lot of, we'll, we'll dream about sort of the big questions. Like she, she won't just ask me, hey, what are we doing this year? She'll say, well, what about 2018 and what about 2019? 
Because, you know, if we're looking there, we got to start thinking about that because that's going to shape what we do now. And, and then I come and, and I'll share some of this stuff with the elders and we'll talk about it and pray about it. But that's the kind of thing we do is we'll dream about these different things. And, and I'm going to tell you one of the things that we're thinking about, and that's, this is because this is, this is something that is very much at the heart of who Felicia is, is that Felicia is uniquely gifted at helping people to develop their giftings to meet other needs. That's one of the things she's really good at, is helping to develop people's giftings and their ability to meet needs. And so one of the things that we realize is we're not sure when, but somewhere down the road, we're going to want to do a more focused uh, a focused kind of season where we really look at in our church, you know, how has God gifted you? How has God uniquely empowered you to be a blessing to, to people around you? And so that's something that down the road we'll probably look to do. But I would encourage you to begin asking that question now. Begin talking about it with your spouse. Begin talking about it with your community group and starting to figure out how am I uniquely powered? How am I uniquely gifted? Because we're called to use this to go out into our world and to give people their lives back. And it's important, it's important for us to realize that we are called to go out and use those to reach those outside the church. Of course, we're also called to use them within the church, right? We're called to use these gifts to bless one another for building up of the church, and, and, and that's, that's certainly true, but I think it's very easy for us to simply be content with that, simply to slip into that. In fact, I, I think that may be what happened in the beginning of Acts, actually. It's rather interesting. The Spirit comes upon the early church, and God tells them, go out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and, and, and they kind of just sit around in Jerusalem. They seem to kind of like it there in Jerusalem. And so, you, I mean, apparently God was serious. He was so serious that the way he got them to finally go out was he sent a wave of persecution upon them. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you, like, God's serious about getting the church out to reach those outside the walls that we're called to relive the climax. We're called to redo and empowered by the Spirit of God to do what Jesus did, and that's to give people their lives back. And so we do this by establishing trust. We do this by meeting people's needs, meeting what their need is. And then thirdly, we give them their life back by pointing them to the source of their provision. By pointing them to the source of their provision. You see, some of you are thinking, I know where you were going with this. It was going to be establish trust, meet their needs, tell them about Jesus. Establish trust, meet their needs, and then give them Jesus. Okay, well, yes and no. Yes and no, because actually one of the things that we need to realize here is that Paul has already given him Jesus. Paul has already given him the gospel. You know why? Because the gospel isn't just a doctrine we believe in. The gospel is a power we employ. The gospel isn't just a, a doctrine we believe in. It's, it's a power that we, that we employ. You, it, it, it's a power that we employ. When, listen, when you find yourself, when you find yourself going out and, and, and caring for people's needs, when you go out there and, and maybe you, uh, you've got the gift of generosity, so you get a, a, a basket of chocolates and essential oils to give to your neighbor who you know is really struggling, and you, you give it for them. And, and here's the reality. If you weren't a Christian, you would have just kept it yourself. 
If it weren't for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you would have just used it yourself. Well, I'm telling you, then that's you giving them the gospel. That's the power of the gospel working through that. When you, when you listen to somebody, when you have the patience to listen to somebody, some coworker that, that really just needs somebody to listen to, and, and, and you listen because the Spirit is prompting you to, then you are, you are, you are giving them the gospel. You are giving them, the, the, you are giving them who Jesus is. And so th- this is why, this is the truth behind that statement, that famous statement, which is falsely uh, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's still a good quote anyways. And it's the quote that says this, something like, right, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You see that when we love people like Jesus did by his power, we are preaching the gospel. We are living it out. We are giving them the gospel. But, but here's what we need to realize. If we really do that, if the Spirit really works through us, and we really love people the way Jesus loved, guess what? That kind of preaching is going to require some clarification. You see, if, you, if, we, if the Spirit's really working through us and we're preaching the gospel through our actions, then, then that preaching is going to require some clarification. So I think we, we might need to modify St. Francis's quote. I don't think he'll mind since he didn't say it anyways. Um, but, but it should say something like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and when it becomes necessary, use words. Because if the Spirit is really working through you, it's going to become necessary. And you want to know why it's going to become necessary? Because if you don't tell them about Jesus, you're going to start taking praise that doesn't belong to you. Do you see what goes on in this passage here? They start worshiping Paul. Right? The power of Jesus works through him, and, and so then they start worshiping him. And so now he doesn't have a choice but to tell them about Jesus, because if he doesn't tell them about Jesus, then he's stealing God's glory. He's like, well, thanks. I know I am pretty awesome. He's like, no, no, this isn't me. You got, I mean, see, this is the point. When, when you pour your life into loving somebody and helping them, and, and, and maybe you help a, a couple that's going through marital struggles, or, or maybe you, you minister to somebody who's sick, and you, and you reach out to them, and they just thank you and they praise you, and they just think you're so wonderful. No, you got to say, look, look, I know this sounds crazy to you, but it's not me. It's Jesus working through me. Let me tell you about it. You see, you're not cramming, the, you're not cramming your religion <laughs> down their throats. You're just, you're just trying to deflect praise. All good evangelism is really just deflecting praise to where it, it deserves to go. That's, that's what Paul's doing here. And so, so then as he deflects praise, he begins to go in and begins to unpack the truth of the God of the Bible. And, and one, of, one of the things I just want to kind of highlight here, one of the things I want us to notice here is that when he does this, when he begins to talk about the truth of the Bible and the gospel, here's one I want you to notice here. Um, he doesn't say to them, you should believe this because the Bible says it's true. Notice that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you should believe this because the Bible says that it's true. He starts unpacking. You'll notice he never even mentions the Bible, this passage. He doesn't say you should believe this because the Bible says it's true. And it's actually kind of curious because in the, the chapter right before this, it's exactly what he does do. 
You see, in Antioch, he's talking with some people, and he's just quoting the Bible all over the place. He's like, look, this is Jesus. This is pointing to Jesus. This is all about Jesus because this is where all of his preaching is going. It's always going towards Jesus. And when he's in Antioch, he's like quoting Bible all over the place. But then when he comes here into Lystra, he doesn't even mention it. Why is it? Because when he was in Antioch, he was talking with a bunch of people who believed that the Bible was authoritative. But when he was in Lystra, he was with a bunch of people who he knew did not think that the Bible was authoritative. You know, every Sunday when I'm, I'm preaching here, I'm, I'm always trying as best I can to consider those people who might come who maybe they don't know what they believe. Maybe you don't know what you believe. You're not sure what you think about Jesus. You're not sure what you think about the Bible, and I'm always trying to consider those on the outside. Now, now, of course, you know, this is a worship service. I mean, this is primarily about us coming together and worshiping God as, as believers, as seekers, pursuing Him. And, and so we're not going to apologize for this. This is why the Bible sits front and center of everything that we do. But, but I'm still, because, because I believe we're called to be, the, ultimately the church is called to go out and to reach those, that I'm, I'm always trying to think about what about those who wouldn't necessarily believe, because isn't it true that if you get outside the walls of the church, most people don't believe the Bible's authoritative. And so it doesn't really do any good. I mean, it, it, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you should believe this because the Bible says it's true. If he knows they don't believe it's authoritative. You know, what, you know what he's doing here? And this is what we need to do. What he's showing them is that it makes sense. He's showing them that it makes sense. He's connecting with, with where they are. That's what he's doing here. It's an agricultural society, so he starts talking about rain and all of this. And, and he's just trying to show them how the biblical worldview makes sense. So this is something I'm always trying to do. As Tim Keller puts it, he says, you're always trying to connect the gospel with, with uh, baseline cultural narratives, hopes, and aspirations. I do it better some weeks than other weeks. And, and when, when, I, when other people preach here, I'm looking to see if they're doing that, if they're able to do that. And if they're not, I'm not as likely to ask them back because we want this to be a place where you feel comfortable inviting people and knowing that they're going to be considered in terms of how all of this is presented. So he, he meets them right where they are, and he, shows, he wants to show them that this all makes sense. But again, but again, that's, that was a little sidebar. That was free of charge, a little extra there. But again, all of this, when he's sharing this, it's all simply to deflect praise from him. He's like, look, friends, when we really love people the way Jesus loved people, they're going to start thinking you're amazing. And that's when you say, no, 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 it's not me. It's not me. Let me tell you about Jesus. So, friends, we're coming, closing in on the end of the series. We've moved through these acts, creation, fall, redemption. And now we're in the climax. We see here that, that, that Jesus, the life of ministry, his life and death and resurrection and ascension, that, that that is the climax. And we, as the body of Christ, are called through union with him to mysteriously, to mysteriously enter into that climax. And that means that we're called, as Jesus has given life back to us, to give people their lives back. And so I'm just going to leave you with these two questions, two simple questions, and they are how and who. How and who.
how has God uniquely gifted you and empowered you to meet the needs of other people? Again, some of you might be really good at, at, at working with people whose marriages are struggling. Some of you might be really good at working with people whose car engines are struggling. I mean, God empowers us and gifts us in a lot of different ways and to meet different needs. And so that's the question that I would want you to think about. How has God uniquely gifted me? And, and what are ways in which I can grow in that? Like, I know this is how I'm gifted, but I could probably use some tools to grow in that area. How, is, how has God gifted me? I encourage you to talk about that with your spouse, to, to talk about that in your community group, right? Start encouraging one another with that. So that's the how question. And then, and then secondly, who? Who is the crippled person who is before your feet? Who are those hurting people who is probably hidden behind a veil of self-sufficiency? But, but who are those people in your life, your neighbor, your coworker, your, your friend, that, that God has placed in your life to have intentional gospel-centered influence on? Because, friends, as the body of Christ, Living in the climax, we are called to give people their lives back. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we praise you for the beauty of the gospel. God, we praise you that to simply reflect upon it, to reflect upon the loveliness of you, Lord Jesus, and how all all of our (coughs) hopes, all of our struggles, all of our questions, all of our challenges find their resolution in you with a beauty and a grandeur that is beyond our ability to fully articulate, Lord. God, I pray we would rest in that. I pray we would just, I just pray, Lord, that your hope would be so evident in our hearts, Lord, that whatever struggles we're going through right now, Lord, whatever challenges we're facing right now, that we would, there's a peace that transcends all understanding that comes from being united with you, Lord Jesus. God, may we be your hands and feet in this world, just giving to others what you have given to us pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come to our time of response. There are a number of ways in which you can respond. You can respond just by sitting there.